the Bethany Covenant Church Sermon Podcast. We are a multi-generational community in Berlin, Connecticut. Our services are held Sundays at 9.30 a.m., and you can find out more about us at www.bethanycovenant.org. Well, good morning. It's good to see you all, and I hope you had a uh, wonderful time celebrating Thanksgiving with family and friends. I want to thank all those who had a part in uh, decorating and beautifying our sanctuary as well as the lobby space. Yeah, thank, thank you all. There were a lot of elves that work here last week, and so it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. But as Christians, we are invited in this season before we get to Christmas to embrace and to linger in the season of Advent that begins today. Advent is a word that means coming or arrival. It's a season when the Christian church really focuses on two arrivals. As we head into Christmas, we think of God himself arriving in human flesh as a tiny infant. We think of that coming of Christ But historically, this season of Advent has meant even more intentionally for the Christian church a time to focus on the next coming of Christ, his second coming that we now as Christians continue to look forward to. It's the coming in glory that was described in Luke 21, which was read earlier. So during these next four weeks, our readings, our prayers, the focus of our sermons, We'll focus on both of these senses of coming and arrival as we consider Jesus being incarnated in human flesh as a tiny baby and as we think of his return in glory. That first sense of Advent, the one we think about of the coming of Christ at Christmas, brings us to those familiar scenes You hear the word Christmas and you probably think of Mary and Joseph and a baby and a manger, and rightly so. And as our pastoral team uh, gathered recently here at Bethany to discuss this Advent series, as the four of us pastors uh, did some planning to put together the sermons that you'll be hearing from each of us over this four-week series, we recognize and acknowledge the challenge of the familiarity of Christmas. The challenge it is, as we think about how familiar and comfortable those images are, the challenge to be reminded and to remind each of us that as familiar and warm that those images and stories may seem, the message of Christmas is nonetheless earth-shattering. Christmas really matters because we really need a Savior. The Creator God coming to earth in human form, literally changed everything. Life with God and a life lived following and serving and loving and honoring God would never look the same after the coming of Jesus. That arrival of Jesus had been a long-anticipated and much-hoped-for event, an event that would answer the deepest needs and longings of humankind, an event that was indeed earth-shattering, Because it was an event that addressed head-on the fact, the reality, that the earth had already been shattered. We're told in the book of Genesis that when God created the heavens and the earth and everything that is in them, 
God looked at what he had made and he declared everything to be good. There were no flaws, no flaws in God's plan or in his execution. And then after God created humankind, this pinnacle of creation made in his own image, we read in Genesis 1.31 that God declared his creation to be very good. And God gave the people he created charge over creation and specifically charge over the garden where he had placed them to tend it and to watch over it. Everything that they needed had been graciously and generously provided to them by the God who had created them. We read in Genesis chapter 2, however, that God warned them, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And this morning we'll focus on Genesis chapter 3, which tells us the story of what happened next. So let me read for us Genesis 3, verses 1 through 15. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you, Above all livestock and all wild animals, you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And then if you continue to read, you'd see that God goes on to describe how difficult life is about to become for Adam and Eve and for all who would come after them as a direct result of their disobedience. The very good gift that God had prepared for his people had already been been shattered. Have you ever been given a, a precious gift, something very valuable that you ended up, you ended up mishandling 
and breaking. Hopefully it wasn't that intentional. <laughs> but we've probably all done that. We probably have all been given something beautiful that we misused, <clears throat> that we mishandled, that we ended up breaking, either because of carelessness or even something deliberate that we did. And we know that when we do that, it brings such a mix of emotions to us. We feel we're mad at ourselves for what we've done. We feel bad for the person who gave us that beautiful gift. We feel guilty that we've mishandled something so beautiful. The weight of that responsibility is on us. We feel sad, we feel frustrated that we won't continue to enjoy this gift that we've been given. And we wish if we could just turn back time a few minutes, we'd go back and, and do it over. And so as we think about how we feel when we do that, I can only imagine how it must have felt for Adam and for Eve. Because this was not the case of a, of a dropped and broken Christmas ornament or even a shattered family heirloom. What they had done was... was nothing less than the fracture of their very relationship with the God who had created them. They had blown it. And the full consequences of what they had done were really only beginning to come into focus. Genesis tells us that when God <clears throat> appeared on the scene in the garden after this act of disobedience, he began asking some questions. And it's not because God didn't know the story, but I think he wanted to hear from his beloved children what they had to say for themselves. And we hear that they basically just started playing the blame game. Adam blamed Eve. He called her that woman you put here with me. Eve blamed the serpent. She said, that serpent deceived me. It's his fault. And so Adam and Eve were probably pretty glad when God turned from them and addressed the serpent first. And said, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. But if we go on and read the rest of the chapter, we see that God would describe in detail what the consequences would be for, for Eve, for Adam, for creation itself, which had been broken. It wasn't just the serpent who would bear the consequences of what had happened. Life was about to get harder for all humanity. God tells the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now some have used this story as an explanation of why a lot of people don't like snakes. But the implications really go a lot deeper because this serpent wasn't just some strange talking snake. This was actually an, an embodiment, embodiment of Satan, who has always been betrayed in Scripture as the deceiver of humankind. In Revelation 12, 9, we encounter that ancient serpent called the devil 
or Satan who leads the whole world astray. Satan has always sought to sow doubt into people's minds when it comes to God's instructions, his commands, and his good plans for people. It's always been Satan's design to try to twist God's words so that people are deceived or at least tempted. But even in God's painfully honest description of the dire consequences that a trans, of all that had transpired in the garden, consequences for the serpent, for humanity, and for the world itself, we are given a glimpse of a Savior. When God says that Eve's offspring will crush the serpent's head and that the serpent will strike his heel, this isn't just about snakes attacking people and people killing snakes. Out of the many descendants of Adam and Eve, God says, there will be one who will crush the serpent, crush the deceiver for good. Jeremy Volkmer, who's a professor of Old Testament at Talbot Theological Seminary, writes this. In the midst of God pronouncing a number of effects that result from Adam and Eve's decision to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Genesis 3.15 offers a ray of hope. God promises that there is a particular child yet to come who will deal the death blow to the serpent. Through the continued use of genealogies, the Old Testament is at pains to demonstrate that many of its most important characters are descendants of the first family begun by God in Genesis 1 and 2. What hangs over each of their stories is whether or not this one is finally the seed, the promised offspring of the woman promised by God in Genesis 3.15. Is it Cain? Is it Abraham? Is it Samson? Samuel? David? Solomon? Is it any of the kings of Israel or Judah? The Old Testament ends without that particular child being born. But the New Testament provides an answer and explains why, for instance, Luke in his gospel traces Jesus' genealogy back to Adam. I love that line. The Old Testament ends without the promise being fulfilled. But the New Testament provides our answer, and that answer is Jesus Christ himself. Genesis 3.15, this verse that includes God's promise about the one who will come, the child who will crush the serpent's head, that verse has been called the Proto-Evangelium, a fancy word for first good news. The first good news in Scripture. The first appearing of a messianic promise. And even though the Old Testament comes to a conclusion, without the birth of the promised one, this one who would crush the head of the serpent, the Old Testament is filled with numerous promises, foreshadowings, and prophecies about him. The prophet Isaiah, in particular, delivered from God messages to God's people. Messages that told of a deliverer, a coming king, a faithful servant, one who would ransom God's people from bondage, not just to their oppressors, but bondage to sin and death itself. Isaiah 9, 1 through 7 was read earlier, and we heard in that passage the titles of this coming Messiah these names that are often used by the church in this season of Advent. 
The child to be born, Isaiah declared, would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, I'm sure there are some of you who right now have Handel's Messiah running through your head. You can hear the tune that is set to these words. One observer writes, The well-known chorus, For unto us a child is born, is now regarded as one of the most glorious expressions of sacred joy in the Christmas repertory. This chorus that includes all of these names for the coming Messiah is a source of joy for those of us who are, who are on this end of the completion of this promise. We are on this side of seeing this Savior come and this promise come to fruition. But in Isaiah's time, these names could only provide a glimmer of hope. The people yet didn't know the joy of deliverance, but these hints at a deliverer stirred up in them and kindled hope as they believed that the words of Isaiah were the very faithful words of God. And these titles for the Messiah, these phrase names, are going to serve as, as guideposts, as kind of anchor points for this four-part sermon series as we journey together through the season of Advent. And this morning we focus on the title, the name, Wonderful Counselor. The book of Genesis prevents us a story of two people who are placed in a garden with pretty simple rules to follow. And then one day those two, two people got some advice. And that advice came not from a wonderful counselor, but from a conniving deceiver. Advice that came from one who was intent to do whatever he could to sever the beautiful and loving relationship between creator and creation. He was focused on sowing doubt into the minds who had not only been created by, taught by God, but had been taught clearly by God himself. This deceiver was focused on holding up to these people something and, and saying, I have something for you that's, that's more desirable than what you've already been given. I have something for you that's actually beyond. It's better. It's a benefit for you. You should take hold of it. That deceiver offered the worst advice in the very young history of humankind. And his advice has not gotten an ounce better ever since. Satan continues to seek to deceive, to mislead, to trick, to trap people, to lead them away from the good things and good plans that God has for them. Scripture calls Satan the deceiver, the accuser, and the father of lies. His aim is to shatter everything that is good that God has created, especially the bond between God and God's people and among the people that God has created. Thank God that God has given us a deliverer who crushes the deceiver. Isaiah prophesied the coming of a wonderful counselor, one who would not deceive God's people, but would instead console them gently and counsel them wisely. A deliverer who is bent on uniting people to God and to one another instead of severing those relationships. 
In this season of Advent, we await and we anticipate the coming again of this wonderful counselor. And we continue to open our ears and hearts to his counsel as Jesus speaks to us through God's word and by God's Holy Spirit. Responding to wonderful counsel isn't always easy. It doesn't always come naturally. In fact, truly wonderful counsel will often seem to go against those things that we would have figured out on our own. Because the reality is that our own line of of reasoning and rationalizing will still very often lead us down that same path that Adam and Eve chose to take. A wonderful counselor isn't someone who, who just gives us pep talks, not just there to cheer us up, although that counselor does provide words of amazing comfort. A wonderful counselor will speak truth to us even when that truth makes us say, ouch, I wish I didn't have to hear that. Wonderful counsel is something that will actually often put its finger on deep places in our lives where there are things that need to be changed, things that need to be faced and addressed, places where we've decided to go our own way rather than following the way that God has laid out for us and lovingly provided for us. So my prayer is that in these weeks of Advent, we would allow God to open our ears to the wonderful counsel of the Messiah, the one who has come and is coming again. May we ask God and allow God to give us discerning ears and minds and hearts so we can better distinguish between the voice of the deceiver who seeks to twist the words of God and lead us astray and the voice, the commands, the guidance, and the promises of our wonderful counselor, our deliverer. By the grace of God working in us, may we in this season be faithful, faithful in our living, in our listening, in our watching, and in our waiting. Please join me in prayer. Jesus, wonderful counselor, would you teach us, guide us, counsel us in this season that in so many ways feels very familiar. Even as we experience the joy of the season and the warmth of the colors, the traditions, and the festivities, remind us why we need a Savior, why you came to earth, and why it's so important that you are coming back. And Jesus, for those for whom this is not a season of joy, but one of challenge, of isolation, of grief, or of mourning, would your wonderful words of counsel speak life and comfort and peace to their hearts. We ask this all in your precious name. Amen.